This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Hello. It's wonderful to see such a such a full house here. Uh, thank you all for for being here. Nice to see so many of you joining us online as well. Uh, sitting together in person like this, uh, it remains a privilege. Uh, one that I think we now realize is easily lost. Sangha community is one of the three jewels of Buddhism. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And of those three, the Sangha is the one that it's really up to us to create. The Buddha, in a sense, left us with his example, the Buddha, his teachings, the Dharma. But the Sangha, we need to recreate over and over. And that's what you're all doing today by joining us, whether here at the temple or online. You're helping us create this Sangha and preserve this Sangha. I really, really, really appreciate that. It still feels a little strange after so long to be sitting together again. And there's still some awkwardness in figuring out our way. So thank you for bearing with us and helping us navigate this new way of creating Sangha. I thought I would talk a little today um, about form. Uh, and what I mean by form are the sort of external manifestations of our practice. Things like the robes, the chanting, like we just did, the morning service, even the posture we use when we sit. It's often one of the first things people notice about a, a Zen temple like Jokoji is this focus on form. It really is one of the distinguishing features of our school of, of Buddhism, our lineage of practice. You know, if you were to go to Spirit Rock in Marin with the Insight Meditation Center down in Redwood City, you'd find a very different approach to form. That for the most part, they've set aside a lot of these external manifestations. 
but we haven't. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about why that is. In, uh, in Dogen's teachings, but let me back up. In the earliest lectures of the Buddha, he hardly talks about form at all. If you read even his long lectures on mindfulness meditation, he might say a little bit about where you should sit, that you should try to find a quiet place. Like he often recommends in the forest or in a quiet hut. But not very much about how you should sit, sort of the mechanics. And doesn't really talk at all about the kind of services and things that we do. But if you go to Dogen, who is the teacher who brought Zen to Japan, you immediately see lots and lots of detail. Uh, sometimes in our service, we chant the, the Fukan Zazengi, which are Dogen's universal recommendations for Zazen, for sitting meditation. And I just thought I would quote a little bit of them here to give you a sense for how focused he was on things like posture. At the site of your regular sitting, spread out thick matting and place a cushion above it. Sit either in the full lotus or half lotus position. In the full lotus position, you first place your right foot on your left thigh and your left foot on your right thigh. In the half lotus position, you simply place your left foot against your right thigh. You should have your robes and belt loosely bound and arranged in order. Then place your right hand on your left leg and your left palm facing upward on your right palm, thumb tips touching. Thus sit upright in correct bodily posture, neither inclining to the left nor to the right, neither leaning forward nor backward. Be sure your ears are on a plane with your shoulders and your nose in line with your navel. Place your tongue against the front roof of your mouth with teeth and lips both shut. Your eyes should always remain open and you should breathe gently through your nose. Once you have adjusted your posture, take a deep breath, inhale and exhale, rock your body right and left and settle into a steady, immovable sitting position. Think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Non-thinking. This in itself is the essential art of Zazen. So notice almost that whole paragraph is about the form. It's almost all physical. What we might think of as the, the mental parts of meditation are just those few short sentences at the end. And you see that uh, if you were to go, for example, uh, to the San Francisco Zen Center and, uh, thank you, and uh, take their introduction to Zen meditation, much of the discussion would be on form, on posture, on how to sit, even how to walk in the zendo, how to hold your arms, 
went to bow. You know, as Buddhism moved from country to country, starting in India, it evolved. To some extent, each country has made Buddhism its own. But in some places, it changed more than others. Buddhism ultimately died out in India, so it's hard to know exactly what the original form was like. But it seems that when it moved to the nearby countries of Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, it didn't change very much. They wrote the scriptures in a different script. They sometimes adjusted the color of the robes to match the local dyes that were available. But in general, those changes were pretty subtle. And if you went from one of those countries to the other, say from Thailand to Burma or Burma to Sri Lanka, and went into a temple, you would, you would find most things were pretty similar. But in some countries, there were big changes. Tibet is always the obvious example. Buddhism in Tibet evolved in very unique ways. If you were to walk into a Tibetan temple, it would seem almost nothing like the monasteries in places like Thailand, Burma. The huge, colorful statues and paintings, all the instruments, complicated robes. And China is also one of the places where Buddhism changed a lot. And I think it changed in China for many different reasons, some cultural, some even environmental. China was a much colder country. And so the original robes that Buddhists wore in India and elsewhere didn't really work in China. And China had two indigenous religious traditions, Taoism and Confucianism. And these also pulled Buddhism in different directions as it settled in, in the country. And Buddhism adapted to both. We tend to think of our forms that we use here as coming from Dogen in Japan. But Dogen brought many of these from China. You can find old books of rules from Chinese monasteries going all the way back to medieval times. And they honestly look pretty similar to the way that things are done today. If you walk into a temple in Thailand, you won't find much that's very similar to Jokoji. But my sense is that if you could walk into a monastery, even from medieval China, you would see a lot that was identifiable as Zen, as our tradition. And this is certainly true today in Japan. When Dogen brought this practice from China to Japan, he remained true to a lot of these Chinese Zen traditions. 
But then even in Japan, things evolved some more. Zen Buddhism there combined with a certain minimalism and perhaps an even more hierarchical system to create their own form of Buddhism. And this is the practice that our founding teacher, Kobenchino Odagawa Roshi, originally brought here. In fact, Koben was originally asked to come to America specifically because he knew so much about the forms. When Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, was starting Tassajara, the first Zen Buddhist monastery in the West. He invited Koben because Koben knew much more about all these monastic rituals that were done in Japan. Suzuki Roshi, as more of a temple priest, wasn't as familiar with them. And so Koben came and taught our Sangha, these forms. Many newcomers to Jokoji uh, will ask why we, why we preserve these Indian, Chinese, Japanese practices. And some old timers ask this too. We do have teachers at Jokoji who who don't follow the forms as much as others. And in fact, over time, we've become a little less uh, observant of the forms than we used to be. Our focus on form is largely practical. We try to preserve the forms that help our practice. And for me, posture is the, is the prime example of this. Sitting with correct posture is difficult at first, following those instructions that I read from Dogen. But if we can sit upright like that, fully supported. Over time, we can sit with less effort and less pain. And form also allows us to let go of our conscious mind, of preferences. When I sit at home, I always use a timer, which in itself it's sort of a form of form. Because of course I could just sit and then when I'm done, get up. But I find that when I sit without a timer, I spend the whole time wondering if this is the right time to get up. I think of it a little bit like, you know, going to a restaurant that has a very large menu. And you can just spend 20 minutes just staring at the menu, trying to figure out what you want next. 
And so in a sense, having all these forms, all this ritual is a way of getting rid of the menu so that we don't have to make choices. In a traditional Zen monastery, no one except maybe the official timekeeper would even wear a watch. You just follow the bells and the drums and you know when you hear one sound to go here, when you hear another sound to go there. And we have some of that in our Zendo. When you hear three bells, that's the start of Zazen. If you hear two bells, that means we stop sitting and start walking meditation. If you hear one bell, that means we stop sitting and we'll do something else, not have another period of meditation. The idea is at every moment that you know exactly what to do without having to think about it, without having to indulge your ego in making a decision. That said, it is possible to have too much form, I think. And it's important to remember that in this and all things, we're seeking the middle way. The Heart Sutra that we chanted this morning reminds us that form and emptiness are not two different things. And when we become too obsessed with form, our practice can become rigid, sort of fussy. As I said here at Jokoji, we've reduced our focus on form a bit. When I wanna go deeper into the forms, I often go to Tassajara where they are more focused on these sorts of rituals. And in fact, I just did that too brush up on some things. And when monks at Tassajara want to learn more about the forms, they go to Japan where there's even more ritual. In a sense, we're all trying to find the right balance. As I said, Kobin himself was a master of these forms and rituals, but he didn't particularly encourage us as his students to become masters. He passed some of these rituals on to us, but didn't seem to worry too much about us following them too strictly. And he did his best to simplify these rituals whenever he could, always looking for that middle way. It's also important to remember the impermanence form. Nothing is cast in stone. In his last lecture, as he was dying, Buddha himself advised us to disregard his rules when they no longer felt appropriate. They started getting in our way. And we talk about this here at Jokoji. When the guiding teachers meet, we often talk about 
What do we want our forms to be? How should practice here unfold? What should change and what should stay the same? What still serves us and what does not? In a way, it remains to be seen whether America, this country, will be one of those countries where Buddhism changes a lot or just changes a little. Some imagine that some wholly new form of Buddhist practice will emerge here. And in some ways, some of these insight and Vipassana communities may be an example of that. We've chosen a more incremental approach here at Chikoji. Our practice is recognizably Soto Zen. We maintain our connection with temples in Japan. But we have still made changes. We have equality of men and women in our temple. We have less hierarchy or informality. And Coben really started all this by even starting with his name, what he asked us to call him. It's basically unheard of for a master in Japan to be referred to by his first name as Coben insisted. The analogy I always give is, it's almost as if Pope Francis asked us to call him Frank. <laughs> <laughs> but that was what Coben wanted. That was his way of starting to make some changes here in America. I used to think of Buddhism as, in America as a great experiment. But over time, I've come to see it as really hundreds, thousands of experiments. Every temple, every community, maybe even every one of you is trying something different. And that was Buddha's way. He asked us to take nothing on faith, to test everything against our experience, to experiment and learn and adjust. And that's what we're doing here. I want to go back for just a moment to Dogen's Fukan Zazengi, those universal recommendations for Zen meditation. And this is how he ends that famous essay. You've gained the pivotal opportunity of human form. Do not use your time in vain. You are maintaining the essential working of the Buddha way. Who would take wasteful delight in the spark from the Flintstone? Besides, form and substance are like the dew on the grass, destiny like the dart of lightning, emptied in an instant, vanished in a flash. Please, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not be suspicious of the true dragon. Devote your energies 
to a way that directly indicates the absolute. Revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. Gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddhas. Succeed to the legitimate lineage of the ancestors awakening. Constantly perform in such a manner and you are assured of being a person such as they. Your treasure store will open of itself and you will use it at will. I don't know for sure if Jokoji's experiment will work. But each of us has only a short time here on earth to practice, to experiment. And we must devote our energies wisely. Each of us has the opportunity, as Dogen said, to realize the absolute. The forms we practice here at Jokoji are intended to help with that noble endeavor. In the end, you must decide for yourself if these forms will work for you. But I'm so grateful to all of you for trying them on today. Thank you. We have some time for questions. If anyone here in the Zendo or online has anything they'd like to ask. Yes. Can you give an example of um, which which of the forms, the formal practices, do you find uh, most most supportive for you lately? Um, that is there is there a practice that particularly speaks to your heart? Thank you. Uh, I'll just repeat the question in case people online can't hear it. Uh, uh, Asia asked, uh, "Is there a practice that I find particularly uh, helpful?" Uh, uh, part of the formal uh, forms. Um, well, I would say a few things. One is, uh, I do find the posture to be quite helpful. And uh, when I teach retreats and so forth, uh, I often do posture corrections for students where during meditation, I'll go and help them get more upright, more straight, uh, because I have found that it just does make a big difference, that there's something about sitting truly upright, your shoulders back, your back straight. That uh, I, I don't know if I can explain it, but it helps. Um, it seems to make a difference. Uh, and so I've gotten a little more focused on that. Uh, but then also I would say the, the service that we did this morning. Uh, I mentioned that I had gone up to Tassajara recently. It was actually to, to practice and get a little more instruction in performing that morning service. And uh, there is something about that ritual of making an offering uh, to Buddha, which I think of as making an offering to our whole lineage, to all the teachers that brought this teaching to us. Uh, that I find very meaningful uh, and that I'm, I'm very helpful, happy to help preserve. Uh, 
Um, a follow-up to that, that's a wonderful question about which forms support you. And you mentioned the physical posture. And um, I'm curious about um, your uh, mental posture as you sit. Um, specifically, I think you mentioned how, uh, maybe it was Dogen's words, something about, um, you know, don't think, and how do we not think it's through non-thinking? Um, how do you get there um, when you notice that you are in the everyday mind of thinking about stuff? Can, can you give me some, some ideas of how I can help bridge myself from everyday mind to um, non-thinking? Uh, so Hogan asked about uh, not just the physical posture, but in a sense, the, the mental posture and uh, Dogen's advice of non-thinking and how do we bridge from our everyday mind uh, to that mind of non-thinking? Well, that's the big question. Um, you know, I remember when I, uh, the very first session I did, it was at the uh, Los Angeles Zen Center when I was still in college. Um, and, you know, as in many uh, Zen temples, uh, the initial instruction I was given was, was to follow my breath. So just pay attention to my breath, um, but not control my breath, not try to change, you know, the cadence or the, the way I was breathing, just to notice it the way it was. Um, and I found that instruction very hard to understand and, and even harder to do that. It didn't seem possible to pay attention to my breathing without, uh, controlling it. Uh, I'm not sure I can entirely explain why, but somehow that didn't even really make sense to me as something to try to do. Uh, cause it seemed as soon as I was paying attention to it, I would just inevitably be controlling how I was breathing. Um, and then at some point over the course of that first week, I don't know, I realized that I was sort of doing it, that I was noticing my breath, but I wasn't actually, uh, changing how I was breathing. And I think about Dogen's advice similarly, that. It's not exactly something we can kind of try to do, um, but that in the same way that, that I was trying to pay attention to my breath, that we just pay attention to our thinking without trying to engage with it, without trying to control it. You know, beginning students, when I teach meditation, you know, will often ask how to clear their minds, how to get rid of all the thoughts. Um, and the thing I always say is that you don't need to do that. You're not really trying to get rid of anything. You're just noticing what's there, uh, paying attention to what's happening to your body, to your mind, to the universe. And 
And I think in a similar way to the breathing, over time, that just noticing our thoughts, we realize that the thoughts are there. But the thinker is not. That it's the thoughts are just thoughts. So I don't really know how to explain how to get there other than other than practice, other than just over and over coming back to this quiet, still sitting, noticing our thoughts without grasping them, without trying to change them. Some people find that relatively easy, but I think most of us find it quite difficult. But in my experience, everything gets easier with practice. Thank you. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> what comes to my mind is uh, the deeper definition, I guess, of aesthetic and aesthetic to ritual. So we practice rituals all the time in some ways without even knowing it. I think it, they're extremely deeply can be communicative rather than these utterances in deeper ways, visually, physically. Like, you know, it's not uncommon where we have the ritual of eating, which is ritual sort of implies something that is somewhat not easily, it's grasped, grasping. So we ritualize it. And ritualizing it is partly what you said, you used the word become appreciative of something that seems by bringing it into a ritual, like when we eat sometimes, especially with somebody special or people special, we instinctually sometimes light a candle. It's inexplicable in a way, but very powerful, sort of. So I think this is, uh, this is very important and it's, uh, it, uh, it may seem as though we're all sitting the same, the ritual's all the same, but it becomes, I think, which you said with more time, practice, it becomes more personal. So I think that the form is extremely important to then telling your, your experience. Okay. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. It's dot, dot backwards. <laughs> you won't forget. So Todd. <laughs> so Todd uh, asked, uh, shared there's also an aesthetic uh, element to ritual, a personal element, that it can be a way of helping us to experience the practice rather than just talk about it. And also, I think you said a way of showing respect and uh, sort of honoring. And I think that's certainly, certainly true. Uh, 
you know, we have certain forms for how we enter the, the Zendo, this meditation hall for uh, bowing to one another when we see each other. Uh, and those, they, they can be just powerful reminders of, uh, of this present moment of what we're doing and of respecting this present moment and what we're doing. Uh, in one of his early books, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, talks about how they had these little verses, these gatas, uh, when he was training as a monk, when he was a novice. And there was a gata, you know, sort of for everything. There was one that you would say when you were brushing your teeth, and one when you were washing your face, and one when you were about to eat, and one when you were ringing a bell, one when you were lighting a candle. Um, so in a way, ritualizing everything through these little chants. And it was just a way to remember to pay attention. Uh, because of course you had to know that you were brushing your teeth or lighting a candle. So you would know which verse to say. You couldn't just kind of sleepwalk through things. Um, and so it can be a way of keeping us present and of showing respect. Oh, thank you. Yes, please. Um, I had a question, but uh, may I first uh, comment on one of the questions that Kogan raised uh, about uh, how to how to do thinking, how to think not thinking, and um, and I and I want to share my experience uh, that what has been helpful for me. Um, and I just, I will try to articulate it uh, because I've, tried, I've just tried to figure it out in the last few minutes. Um, I, I think that when Dogen says, uh, think not thinking, he is referring to the connection between uh, the what Suzuki Yoshi has called um, the small mind and the big mind. So, the small mind uh, refers to our mind, which is our sense of I or the narrator or the voice in the heads. And the, the big mind is the witness or the watcher or the awareness or the quietening or the seeing. And uh, so what I've noticed in my meditation is that uh, when the big mind becomes accessible at this moment of detachment, where all thoughts just stop. And uh, what has helped me to get there is two things. Um, one of the things that helped, has helped is emotional, which is the sense of trust that the big mind is there and that trust takes me there. And then and the other one is intellectual where, um, where I, know, uh, I, know, I know that if I observe my thoughts, which is me, with a sense of neutrality, uh, this neutrality, this neutral feeling is kind of like ascending up the ladder and reaching that big mind state. That's something I wanted to share. Um, and the question I had was about the forms. Uh, I was just curious, uh, how come how can we sit uh, in Soto Zen? Why, 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 why is it that our hands are like this? 
I've seen Buddha in all kinds of things like this, like that, uh, with the heart center over here, and all, all kinds of different hand uh, postures. I was wondering why why is it that it was chosen like this? And so then. Thank you. And what is your name? Karan. Karan? Uh, Karan's question was about the the mudra that we use when we sit. Why do we sit like this? You see Buddha with many different uh, many different hand positions. Um, and I don't know if I exactly can answer why. Uh, it's often said that this sort of circle that we make is is symbolic of of emptiness. Uh, and also of all things. And so that symbol of a circle is a very traditional symbol in Zen. Our teacher, uh, Coben, uh, who among other things was a great calligrapher, he often drew that image. Uh, I think I he once gave me a, a calligraphy of a, of a circle like that. Um, And so I, I don't know beyond that it it became essentially uh, a symbol of our of our way of sitting of our practice. Uh, as you say, there are other traditions where people put their hands on their on their knees, perhaps touching fingers. Um, but Zen became always associated with this this circle uh, mudra. Uh, I don't know if anyone else knows the the origin beyond that, uh, but I don't know the. Uh... I can share what I've heard <clears throat> from ashrams in India mm -hmm. that the mudras uh, and there's not one mudra, yeah, uh, multiple mudras, but they're meant for uh, energy stores. Mm -hmm. So and, and going back to the question of form, what I heard is the spine is a major. Focus area for one's energy. So, you know, keeping the spine straight when you sit in a certain posture is very helpful. Uh, it's not all essential, but it's very helpful to get to that state. The, what we refer to as the big mind. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I have time for one more question, either online or, yes, please. Hi, uh, my, my question is based on one sentence that you said in your Dharma talk. It's been coming up for me repeatedly. It's kind of a silly question, but I figured I'd ask you. You know, you mentioned that Coben, to the people that knew him, his original students, he, he requested them to call him Coben because I think he probably didn't want to get elevated or something like that. And because that's the tradition in America. But I, I find myself, you know, I did not know Covencino Roshi. Uh, and now that he's gone, out of respect, I, I feel like every time I call him Coleman, there's something that doesn't quite uh, sit right with me. So I don't know if it's a question you can answer, but is it okay for people who didn't know him personally to still refer to him as Covencino Roshi? Or you think he, after his death, he would have wanted, he would have cared or, I don't know what I'm asking, but it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me to call him Coben because I did not know him in a, in a person and that instruction didn't come to me directly. 
So I don't know if everyone could hear, but Kaveh asked. Just like, uh, just like I don't call Suzuki Roshi Suzuki or Shunryu. Yeah, is it really okay? People who didn't know Coben, so he didn't ask them to call him that, to call him by his first name. Uh, what would he have wanted? And it's hard to know. Um, the first real job I had when I left college, uh, I went to Asia. I was living in a Thai uh, temple and I was teaching uh, English uh, at a Vietnamese uh, refugee camp in Thailand. There were still refugee camps in Thailand then. Um, and I tried to get my students who were mostly Vietnamese adults uh, who had fled Vietnam, who had actually walked all the way across Cambodia to Thailand. I would try to get my students to call me Dan. And they just couldn't do it um, because it just sounded too disrespectful to them. Um, they felt every time they said that, that they were insulting me. Um, and, uh, and so eventually I, I gave up because it felt actually it was unkind to them to try to make them do this, which made me more comfortable, but made them less comfortable. Um, uh, and, and so I think to some extent, if it makes you uncomfortable to refer to Coben that way, it's, it's absolutely fine to refer to him. Otherwise, when I was at uh, Tassahara, this was just a couple of weeks ago now, someone uh, referred to, was talking about different Japanese teachers and mentioned Odegawa-san. And I had no idea who he was talking about. Uh, and it was quite embarrassing because he was talking about Coben. At some point he said like, what, what, I thought he was your teacher. Um, and uh, I realized that that was how he was comfortable referring to, to Coben. Um, I think uh, Coben would be fine with whatever uh, you would like to call him. I think that um, if, uh, if it's uncomfortable to use his first name, it's fine to use something more formal. Uh, in some ways, I think it's important that we not be too too rigid in these things. And in a way, insisting that everyone call him Coben is in a sense, just as formal as insisting that everybody call him Odegawa Roshi or something like that. Um, and I don't think he would want that. Uh, so uh, I think it's okay to use uh, whatever makes you feel both close and, and respectful of, uh, of our original teacher. Thank you for the question. So I think with that, we'll, we'll close up here. Uh, I think we'll have lunch uh, in a few minutes. Is that up at the community building? Well, yeah, we'll go up to the community building and uh, with our masks on, go inside and bow in together, have some announcements and uh, serve ourselves food, and then we'll eat outdoors. So I, I hope you'll all join us there. And, uh, and once again, thank you. Thank you so much for coming, those of you who are here in person and, and those of you who are online. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.